Welcome back to Misdiagnosed. My name is Kaylin Pyle and I'm the host of Misdiagnosed. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. Today we're going to talk about how the mental health industry, how psychiatry has constructed this concept of mental illness. And we're going to go into the scope of that, kind of the history of it. We're going to look at some statistics. We're going to, my favorite, look at some quotes from experts because I'm not an expert. I'm a researcher and I think I'm coming kind of a layperson expert in this field. That's my intention anyway. But until that happens, I'm relying on information from actual experts. And my job is to translate that information over to you. Everybody speaks a different language. Some people speak my language. They're going to hear this and be like, oh my God, like I didn't know. It could potentially change their lives. So we talked a little bit about the DSM and I'm currently reading a book by Gary Greenberg. It's called The DSM and the Unmaking of Psychiatry. And I've just started reading that book. So I don't have a ton to share with you right now, but I will. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I've got some notes about the scope of the DSM-derived mental illness structure, the budget for international mental health care has skyrocketed in the last 10 years in the United States. And this is data that, gosh, I want to say it's at least 10 years old. It takes a while to collect this kind of data, so I'm sure it's even more now. So these numbers sound big that I'm about to share with you. Just imagine how much bigger they are now. In 1994, the mental health budget was $33 billion in the United States. And today, which I believe was about 10 years ago, is more than $80 billion. So from $33 billion to $80 billion. Switzerland spending on mental health increased from $73 million in 1988 to over $184 million by 1998. So in a 10-year period, it grew by over $110 million. It's crazy. Germany currently spends more than $2.6 billion a year on so-called mental health. And in France, mental health costs have soared, contributing $400 million to the country's deficit. Now, it sounds like, based on the increases in budget, that there's been a great advance in the care and that we should probably expect that the number of disabled, mentally ill people in the U.S. at least would have declined over the past 50 years or so. In 1955, there were 355,000 adults in state and county mental hospitals. This was before the state mental hospitals were mostly closed, and they had a psychiatric diagnosis. 355,000. During the next three decades, which was the era of the first generation psychiatric drugs that hit the scene, that number rose to 1.25 million, the number of disabled, mentally ill people. Prozac came onto the market in 1988, and during the next 20 years, the number of disabled mentally ill people grew to more than 4 million adults. This was data from 2007. So over 20 years, people who are mentally ill grew, even though these drugs are arriving on the market, hmm? which you would think with the advent of these miracle drugs, fewer people would be mentally ill, right? If they're supposed to help with symptoms, but more and more people are becoming mentally ill. So what is going on? I found this really shocking and it made me very grateful to my parents for not being part of the statistic. I was born in 1987. So during the period of 1987 to 2007, children and adolescents receiving psychiatric medication or prescriptions for psychiatric medications took off. And this is a medical practice that really, really, really took hold during this period of time. The number of young people in America that receive government disability checks because of a mental illness went from just over 16,000 in 1987 to 561,000 in 2007. It increased by 35 fold. 
It doesn't stop there. I've got more really crazy statistics for you. So 1903, turn of the century, turn of the last century, right? About one in 500 people in the US were hospitalized for mental illness. One in 500 people, and there were a lot fewer people back then. So it seems like a lot, but from 1955 to 1987, which is the year I was born, during, again, that first era of psychiatric drugs, the antipsychotic drugs, Haldol and Thorazine, and the tricyclic antidepressants, like an Afrinil and an Elevil, these are not very commonly prescribed anymore. The number of disabled mentally ill increased four times to one out of every 75 people. Now, one in every 50 Americans, this is data from 2007, is disabled by mental illness. The number of mentally disabled people in the US has been increasing by 150,000 people every year since 1987. And that's an increase every day of 410 people. And I can almost guarantee you, since this is data from 2007, that it's far more now in 2022, 15 years later. Now, today's antidepressants are not the tricyclic ones that I just mentioned. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, are what most people are placed on today. And there's a certain percentage of people that get prescribed and start taking these drugs that even though they're suffering from depression, and that's why they get prescribed these drugs, they will suffer a manic or psychotic attack. It's drug-induced. So now, instead of just dealing with the emotional issue of depression, they're dealing with manic and psychotic symptoms. And come to think of it, the reason I started smoking weed is because I was depressed and it made me really deal with my emotions. That's why I appreciated it so much. And eventually I was able to release a lot of that stuff and I found it more comfortable to be myself. But then I had a manic episode as a result of, I guess, too much dopamine. There can be too much of a good thing, right? And it was, I was vapor, like using vapor cannabis. So who knows if that's different than the raw stuff. You just can't know these days, especially. So when you have a drug-induced manic episode, whether it's from cannabis or an SSRI, what happens? You go to an emergency room and I was in four different emergency rooms. So that's how I know. And then you get diagnosed. They're now said, like I was, to be bipolar. And then they're given an antipsychotic to go along with antidepressant, which I wasn't taking. Thank goodness. I never took an antidepressant more than like three days because I knew. I read about them. I was a research fiend even at that time. And I'm so grateful for it. I read about the drugs and I knew that they were dangerous. I knew that they weren't necessary because I knew the whole time I knew that there was a source to the depression that I was feeling. And I thought it was me. I thought I was just a terrible person, but I knew that taking a drug, even at some points when I found myself very desperate for relief from feeling that way, that I even requested antidepressant, but then I was too scared to take it. <laughs> My fear in a way protected me. But what happens is when you get put on additional drugs because you're said to be bipolar because you are depressed and you're taking an SSRI and then you have a manic or psychotic attack that's induced by the drug is that you're bipolar because you're swinging back and forth between being depressed and manic and it's drug induced. And so you get put on an antipsychotic or sometimes a mood stabilizer. I got prescribed Abilify, which is called a mood stabilizer. But at that point, you're moving down a path toward chronic illness, chronic disability. And going back to how many kids have been declared mentally ill. Mental illness, as of 2007, was the leading cause of disability in kids. Just as a snapshot, in Massachusetts, 60 to 70% of kids in foster care are now on psychiatric drugs. 60 to 70%. And they're saying that none of that has to do with the environment. Like, I would probably be on psychiatric drugs if I were in foster care. I mean, the system ain't fun from what I hear. 
stimulants can cause mania, yet kids are being put on stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall all the time. Stimulants can cause psychosis. And you know when kids are put on antidepressants as well, that mixing that can cause all kinds of stuff. So kids are becoming chronically ill. Now, I think the issue here is that psychiatrists have, as I've said before in the last two episodes, and I will continue to say, is that not a single mental illness has been shown to have a biological or physical cause or a genetic origin. These mental illness symptoms can be a symptom itself, right? So as in my case, anxiety was a symptom of having an active virus in my nervous system and in my brain that the neurotoxins produced by this virus were causing the symptoms. And I was internalizing all of that, thinking that I had this personality disorder or thinking that maybe I did have bipolar and that I did have it my whole life. And I just was searching, 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 constantly searching my past, looking for clues that I somehow missed that would give me some sort of explanation. So I started believing a lie. I started believing a myth because I had no other way to explain it. There is not a single physical test that can determine that an individual actually has a particular mental illness. And the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, it uses behavior, not physical symptoms, to diagnose the mental illnesses. And using behavior instead of physical symptoms that can be quantified and observed empirically means that the DSM lacks reliability and validity scientifically. There is no scientific proof, no neuroscientific evidence, no studies, no tests that can prove the existence of mental illness. There's just a lack of evidence. In 1999, the Surgeon General issued a report on mental health and it stated that the precise causes, also called the etiology of mental disorders, are not known and there is no definitive lesion, laboratory test, or abnormality in brain tissue that can identify a mental illness. The textbook of clinical psychiatry published in 1999 states that validation of the diagnostic categories as specific entities has not been established. Psychiatric disorders are not medical diseases. There's no lab tests, brain scans, x-rays, or chemical imbalance tests that can verify that any mental disorder is a physical condition. Now, when I went to Amen Clinics in March of 2021, I underwent a SPECT scan of the brain. You might think, oh, well, there are brain scans now that can show evidence of mental illness. What it showed was the activity in my brain and how certain regions of it had lower or higher activity than a so-called healthy brain. It showed scalloping around the edges of certain parts. It showed evidence of traumatic brain injury. What it's not showing is a specific medical disease. It's not showing an existence of a brain disease at all. It's simply showing damage and levels of activity in the brain very, very useful. And that put me on the path to uncovering what was causing the lowered or increased activities in certain areas of my brain. And I absolutely would not be surprised at all if my extended use of Xanax, even at lower doses, damaged my brain. I promise you quotes from experts, psychiatrists, doctors that support what I've just said here. So here's one from David Kaiser. He's a psychiatrist. He said, modern psychiatry has yet to convincingly prove the genetic slash biologic cause of any single mental illness. Patients have been diagnosed with chemical imbalances despite the fact that no test exists to support such a claim. And there is no real conception of what a correct chemical balance would look like. Another psychiatrist, Ron Leifer, said, there's no biological imbalance. When people come to me and say, I have a biochemical imbalance, I say, show me your lab tests. There are no lab tests. So what's the biochemical imbalance? 
Joseph Glenmullen, he's a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist, said, while there has been no shortage of alleged biochemical explanations for psychiatric conditions, not one has been proven. Quite the contrary. In every instance where such an imbalance was thought to have been found, it was later proven false. Dr. Elliot Valenstein, he's a PhD, he's author of the book Blaming the Brain. He said the theories are held onto not only because there's nothing else to take their place, but also because they are useful in promoting drug treatment. Now, the reason that I know psychiatry is never going to change from within, it's only going to keep holding on to this belief that drugs are the answer, these biological treatments that are damaging the brain but suppressing the symptoms so they can convince people that it works. They're never going to come out and say, hey, all that stuff that we've been talking about, it's wrong. But think about how wrong medical science has been in the past, how wrong mental illness treatments have been in the past. And this show is going to go in depth on a lot of those things. We're going to talk about lobotomy. We're going to talk about electroshock therapy. We're going to talk about the inhumane treatment of people in insane asylum where you would get put away for life. There would be no way you'd get out because they believed a thousand percent that you could not live on your own, that you were sick. And people's entire lives were completely destroyed by these insane asylums, right? So there's never been a time in our history where medical science or any medical specialty has been right about everything. So why do we accept it as gospel today? Why? Couple more quotes. Oh, Dr. Thomas Sass, he's one of my favorites. The late Thomas Sass, may rest in peace. He was a professor emeritus of psychiatry at New York University Medical School in Syracuse. He said there is no blood or biological test to ascertain the presence or absence of a mental illness as there is for most bodily diseases. If such a test were developed, then the condition would cease to be a mental illness and would be classified instead as a symptom of a bodily disease. Dr. Sidney Walker III, he's a psychiatrist, said... I believe until the public and psychiatry itself see that DSM labels are not only useless as medical diagnoses, and he put that in quotes, but also have the potential to do great harm, particularly when they're used as means to deny individual freedoms or as weapons by psychiatrists acting as hired guns for the legal system. I really believe change has to come from us, normal people, right? People who have emotional problems and issues and they're working through them. We have to realize, hey, these solutions that are being offered to us by psychiatry are complete bullshit. And we have to recognize the reality that they're in this for the money. They're not in this for actual healing. We have to be in it for the healing. It's our lives that hang in the balance. Dr. Bruce Levine, he's a PhD, a psychologist and author of Common Sense Rebellion. He says no biochemical, neurological, or genetic markers have been found for attention, deficit disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, compulsive alcohol and drug abuse, overeating, gambling, or any other so-called mental illness, disease, or disorder. No biochemical, neurological, or genetic markers. That doesn't mean people aren't saying that they have been found. That's what I'm finding in my research. It's unbelievable how many so-called professionals in the field of psychiatry are saying that they have been found. When you actually look at the studies, they have not been found. There's no conclusive evidence whatsoever. Tana Deneen, she's a PhD psychologist, she says, unlike medical diagnoses that convey a probable cause, appropriate treatment, and likely prognosis, the disorders listed in DSM are terms arrived at through peer consensus. I can't wait to get into the DSM with you guys. There's so much. I have three versions of the DSM, including copy that I got on eBay of the DSM-2, the six printing. I paid $950 for that thing on eBay. It's extremely rare. And this is crazy, the language that is used in comparison to the much, much thicker 
and more complicated DSM-5. I didn't get the newest, newest edition with prolonged grief disorder added. I didn't want to pay the money to get that. I bought a used copy of everything that I could. We get into how the DSM was constructed, and that's what the book from Gary Greenberg, The Book of Woe, is the DSM and the unmaking of psychiatry. Once I get really into that, I'm gonna, I have a bunch of notes already from other books I've read, and I just wanna hit it hard and make sure I'm super organized so it ends up being a really impactful episode about this Bible of psychiatry that was constructed and how it was constructed, and hearing from eyewitnesses who are actually part of the process, and not just eyewitnesses who are part of the process who are against its use and against its fakeness, I guess, in the industry. I'm going to be sharing information from doctors who are for it and kind of juxtaposing the different camps, so to speak, for and against the DSM. And what I think you'll find surprising and what I've found surprising so far is the people who are for it, to me, sound completely delusional. And it's just so ironic because the people who have the power to declare someone as mentally ill show more signs of mental illness than anyone. It's just, it's crazy. No pun intended. We have a couple more quotes here that I want to share with you guys. Dr. Joseph Glenmullen, he's from Harvard Medical School. He's a psychiatrist. He said, no claim for a gene for a psychiatric condition has stood the test of time in spite of popular misinformation. So like I just said, there's still a lot of information out there. A lot of people are saying that there is a genetic connection. Just because people are looking for it and headlines are published saying that certain mental illnesses may be connected, that doesn't prove the existence of the mental illness. First of all, that's it's based on a false premise already. There's no proof of existence. All they're saying is that they're doing a study and they're trying to connect it. That doesn't mean that the connection has actually been found. But headlines get twisted all the time because news media outlets want the traffic. They make money the more people that land on their websites. Another psychiatrist, David Kaiser, he said, modern psychiatry has yet to convincingly prove the genetic and biological cause of any single mental illness. So it can't get any more clear than that. And we have a quote from a child neurologist, Dr. Fred Bauman Jr. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. He said, in 40 years, quote, biological psychiatry has yet to validate a single psychiatric condition slash diagnosis as an abnormality slash disease or as anything neurological, biological, chemically imbalanced, or genetic. Just not there. There's no proof. There's no validation of any of it. So what exactly is a disease? We kind of touched on that in defining what mental illness is. We talked more about it in episode two of it being a myth and how that was constructed. It's a social construct. We talked about that. What is a disease? And I called in the experts for this as well. There's Dr. Thomas Dorman. He's an internist and he's a member of the Royal College of Physicians of the UK. He's fancy pants British dude, I guess. (laughs) He said, in short, the whole business of creating psychiatric categories of disease formalizing them with consensus and subsequently ascribing diagnostic codes to them, which in turn leads to their use for insurance billing, is nothing but an extended racket, furnishing psychiatry a pseudoscientific aura. The perpetrators are, of course, feeding at the public trough. It's a racket just set up for insurance billing. It's crazy. Dr. Stefan Krasuski, it's hard to pronounce his name. I'm probably butchering it. He's a Harvard-trained Pennsylvania psychiatrist. 
In 2004, he said, we can manufacture enough diagnostic labels of normal variability of mood and thought that we can continually supply medication to you. But when it comes to manufacturing disease, nobody does it like psychiatry. I love it when the psychiatrists themselves are honest, right? And those are becoming quickly some of my favorite authors, like Dr. Bregan. He was a psychiatrist. He is a psychiatrist. Thomas Das, the ones who go through the training, they go through it all and they start noticing just how insane the whole industry is and how it is inventing disorders. And they see that the only way they make money is by diagnosing people. Another psychiatrist, Dr. Colin Ross, he said the way things get into the DSM is not based on blood tests or brain scan or physical findings. It's based on descriptions of behavior. And that's what the whole psychiatry system is descriptions of behavior and if the behavior is unacceptable like we talked about in the last episode if the behavior is unacceptable and it's disapproved of and it's against what society has considered normal then that's considered a mental illness it's absurd there are some cultures where psychosis symptoms and mania symptoms and schizophrenic symptoms like all the things that are that are considered dangerous and maladaptive or whatever term you want to use those people are taken care of and respected because they're seen as having a spiritual experience and to be honest with you, that was exactly what it felt like when I was going through these periods of so-called psychosis. It was a very spiritual experience. I felt a lot more connected to the world and in some ways and then in other ways not. It's very hard to describe. I think people who have experienced psychosis would agree with me that it's not something you can put into words very easily. It's an experience that cannot be explained by medical science, obviously, <laughs> because it's not physical. And we do lack the language to describe it. That's part of the issue. That's what psychiatry is trying to do is come up with language that's incredibly elementary and lacking but language nonetheless to describe these disordered behaviors and calling them illnesses because they have no other way to explain them. It's like a garbage bin for anything they disapprove of. Not a fan. Not a fan. So disease is essentially being created. Psychiatry's diagnostic criteria are literally voted into existence and inserted into the DSM. And what's voted in is a system of classification of symptoms, a list of symptoms that is drastically different than anything else in medicine. None of the diagnoses are supported by objective evidence of physical disease, illness, or science. None. So I have an anonymous quote from a psychologist that was attending DSM hearings when it was getting ready to be published, I believe like DSM-5. The low level of intellectual effort was shocking. Diagnoses were developed by majority vote on the level we would use to choose a restaurant. Then it's typed into the computer. It may reflect on our naivete, but it was our belief that there would be an attempt to look at the things scientifically. You gotta ask, you know, what's behind all of this? What are the motives? What's motivating these people to construct all these illnesses? And you're probably already thinking it, but it's money. Dr. Margaret Hagen, she's a psychologist and she wrote a book called Whores of the Court, The Fraud of Psychiatric Testimony and the Rape of American Justice. She was very blunt about the motives behind the voting system for the DSM. She said, if you can't come up with the diagnosis, you can't send a bill. <laughs> it's true, the amount of money that the U.S. spends on psychiatric drugs is more than the gross national product of two-thirds of the world's countries. Like, it's insane how much money is being spent on these brain-damaging drugs. 
and more and more people are getting mental illnesses and nobody's even saying anything about it. That's why I'm saying something about it. There's more money spent on drugs, more people are being diagnosed as mentally ill, and there's more drugs on the market than ever. They're not working. It's obvious that they're not working. And nobody's saying anything about it. Nobody's saying, hey, maybe the drugs aren't working. Maybe the drugs are actually making things worse. The people who are saying something about it, it's never going to be psychiatry. It has to be us that we have the awareness and we take control and we say, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to figure out a way to safely come off of these drugs if you're on them. And at the end of every show, I have a little bit that says it's dangerous to come off of these psychiatric drugs. And we're going to talk about in a later episode, we're going to talk about the symptoms of withdrawal from these psychiatric drugs. People were literally dying because they stopped taking their drugs. Cold turkey, they just, they, just, they just die. Like, that's terrible. If it were a safe drug to take in the long term, that wouldn't happen, right? But the tests aren't done long enough to show the effects of long-term drug use. There are very short trials and with very few people. This neuroscientist at Princeton, his name's Barry Jacobs, he had a really good description on what happens when a person takes an SSRI antidepressant. These drugs alter the level of synaptic transmission beyond the physiologic range achieved under normal environmental biological conditions. So any behavioral or physiologic change produced under these conditions might more appropriately be considered pathologic rather than reflective of the normal biological role of serotonin. It's kind of a mouthful, but basically it's saying that the drugs cause more problems than they solve. It happens with antipsychotics too. They profoundly block dopamine receptors. That's what antipsychotics do. In fact, they block 70 to 90% of them in the brain. And so what happens is the brain sprouts, literally grows about 50% more dopamine receptors. It becomes extra sensitive. So by taking antipsychotics, you create an imbalance in the dopamine system in the brain. You create the chemical imbalance. So when people go off the drugs and they have relapses, they have this reaction of going off the drug, they have too many dopamine receptors, there's that real chemical imbalance created by the drugs. All that happens is that they go back on the drugs because the drugs appear to help them with the problem. So the drugs create the problem, they perpetuate the problem, they make the problem, the so-called problem exists in the first place, and then by going off the drug, it makes the problem worse. There's a dependence on the drug that the psychiatric and mental health industry, it's the industrial complex, is trying to use as proof that the disease exists. Kind of like how when they do studies of twins with schizophrenia, when one sibling has a schizophrenia and the other doesn't, so so-called schizophrenia, the kid with schizophrenia has been diagnosed with it, they undergo a brain scan that shows a s- smaller brain. Well, what the study doesn't really put a lot of emphasis on is that the kid with schizophrenia has been on antipsychotic drugs. Their brain actually shrinks. That's not proof that kids with schizophrenia or anybody with schizophrenia has a smaller brain. The smaller brain didn't happen until after the antipsychotic drugs came on board for a long period of time. It's absolutely asinine how these supposedly smart, educated people are lying to themselves and lying to us. Psychiatry is a total pseudoscience. Many psychiatrists say that. It doesn't qualify as a science. Okay, I'm getting a little too (laughs) emotionally charged. I need to take a break. So I think this is where we're going to wrap this one up. Thank you so much for tuning in to this brief but exciting episode of Misdiagnosed. We've got so much more to cover, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes if you found this episode helpful or informative in any way. Share with a friend. Let's spread the word. We'll wake up together and get well together.
Thank you so much for tuning in to Misdiagnosed. If this show has helped you in any way, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Sharing your experience will help others who are lost in the darkness find their own way out of the science of lies. Please note that while I may go in-depth into medical topics and have acquired substantial medical knowledge, I am not a medical doctor. I'm a researcher. I'm a messenger of hope for other survivors of industrialized psychiatry. Because of how toxic psychiatric drugs are, it can be extremely dangerous, even life-threatening, to suddenly stop taking certain drugs. This is especially true for antidepressants, antipsychotics, and benzodiazepines. The longer you've taken the drug, the more dangerous withdrawal can be. If you want to heal your brain and soul naturally, the way it was designed to do, please seek the help of a compassionate and patient-centered physician to start the process of withdrawing from them as safely as possible. It will take time for your brain to reacclimate to life without the drugs, and there are doctors out there who will support you in your quest to save your brain. Never give up. You can heal.